Rediscovering the Book, Part 2. I'm going to read you a, a, a small article written by a pastor. His name is Ryan Visconti. He's out of Arizona, Pastor's Assembly of God Church in Arizona. Big church, big church, much bigger than ours. And he talked about preaching the gospel and teaching the word during these very challenging times. And I just want to read to you some of his thoughts before we get into this lesson. All right, you guys ready? You guys ready? All right, very good. Thank you. Too many avoid preaching about some of the uncomfortable issues of our day like sexual immorality, gender confusion, abortion, money, or casual divorce. But these problems are tangible symptoms of a culture separated from its Savior. I don't advocate teaching on these sensitive issues in order to guilt trip or condemn the listener, but to probe the soul like a doctor poking around a patient's body asking, does this hurt? (laughs) Conviction hits differently when we talk about personal issues. It's one thing to embrace the benefits of following Jesus. It's another thing to lay down our preference and pet issues. This is where the rubber meets the road and pretending becomes impossible. When you talk about money, people squirm because treasure is tied to the heart. The world has linked sexuality to core identity, so those conversations always cut through the noise. Talking about abortion quickly reveals whether people see Jesus as Lord or just a would-be Savior. When we highlight these issues, we're not doing it to make a point or political statement. Rather, we make a spiritual diagnosis based on God's biblical standards, which aren't subjective. We need this clarity more than ever if we want to reach people with the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And in our efforts to reach the lost, we must be careful to remember the disciple to disciple the found. I'd argue that, currently, the fields are especially ripe as the devil has overplayed his hand. That's good. With recent transgender and gender dysphoria debates raging in America, even non-believers are sensing the absurdity of sin. People are longing for the refreshing sound of truth spoken clearly. Parents desperately want help guiding their children through the treacherous waters of gender confusion. In other words, even unchurched people are coming to the church pleading for someone to point them to the true north. As I've become bolder in speaking speaking on these topics, I've found that gentle but clear confrontation forces people to make a realistic assessment of where they stand with God. It's easy to pretend Jesus is your Lord if no one ever highlights the idols in your life. But real talk cuts through self-delusion with the restorative conviction of the Holy Spirit. By preaching boldly with grace and truth will help people choose repentance over a life of sin and slavery. Yes, some will walk away sad like the rich young ruler wanting their vices more than victory, but many others will repent of sin and submit their lives to Jesus. That kind of revival results in a more unified and effective church. As I have leaned into these issues, despite my own hesitations and fears, I've been encouraged by the overwhelming gratitude from church members. People are desperate to hear biblical truth from trusted leaders in the church. And pastors have a duty to deliver it. God called us for this very purpose, to equip the saints. If pastors don't boldly proclaim God's word inside the church, how can they expect God's people to boldly live for him in a fallen world? What do you guys think about that? Was that good? I like that. I like that. So in 2 Kings 22, verse 8, this was last week. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law 
in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Sharpen and Shaphan, and he read it. And he, after reading it, took it to the king, and he read it. And oh my gosh, they went to the prophetess, and she read it and said, the judgment of God is on this place. They humbled themselves. They turned back to God, and revival began to take place as people rediscovered the book. Rediscovered book. So just uh, going over a little bit what I shared last week, what happens when you neglect the book? I said two things. The house of God becomes neglected, and people perish for lack of knowledge. Those were two main points that I made last week. They had neglected the word of the Lord. I mean, they, they found the book in the temple because Josiah had uh, commissioned the, the priest to repair the temple because it was in disrepair. And they found the book. But if you go back to the law, the book of Deuteronomy, you found that the, the Levites were supposed to teach the word of God to the people of God from city to city to city to city. The king was to have his personal copy of the law and and read it every single day. And also a copy of the law was to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony to God. So what happened to it, you know? They had neglected it for years and years and years. And because of that, the house of God became neglected. And the book of Hebrews talks about neglecting the house of God. This passage famous passage, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The day approaching is what day? Sunday? What day? So much the more as you see the day approaching. What is the day approaching? The return of the Lord. And what are we supposed to do more and more as the coming of the Lord draws near? Assemble. Supposed to assemble. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another. So we exhort one another to assemble. You going to church? You going to church? Well, I see you at church. And also, when you're at church, it's an exhortation to others that are at church that we are all serving the Lord by being at church. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more. So much the more you assemble together and exhort one another because that day is approaching. So why do we need to exhort one another and assemble ourselves together more and more or more frequently as the day the coming of the Lord draws nigh? Why is that? Because the Bible says in the last days it will be perilous doctrines of devils and deceptive spirits. And it'll be like the days of Lot and the days of Noah and uh, deception and a great falling away is going to be taking place. Sue fell. That's part of the falling away, I think. Uh, so be praying for her. The great falling away. And so the Bible gives this warning. But you know what? In America, in America, people are attending church less and less. Among those that claim to know Christ, that are believers, did you know that the, uh, that the commitment to the house of God is now once or twice a month on church attendance? When I got saved back in 76, you know who the committed were? They attended Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And through the years, Sunday morning and Wednesday night. Sunday night went by the wayside. And then it was just simply Sunday morning, not even 
Wednesday night, and now it's every other Sunday. It's the exact opposite of what should be taking place, according to Hebrews chapter 10. You should see the coming of the Lord drawing near, it getting darker and darker. You should have a greater dependency uh, of the Lord, a greater hunger and thirst to be in the house of God, a greater sense of the importance of this because darkness is rising. How much more do we need to gather and meet together? But frankly, it just isn't happening. And so the house of God becomes neglected, and people perish for a lack of knowledge. In 2 Kings 22, it talks about God's bringing calamity upon them. They've forsaken me. I'm going to judge them now. My wrath is kindled against them. We talked about this last week. Hosea 4 verse 6 says this, talking about people perishing for a lack of the knowledge of the word, essentially, all right? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge Knowledge. I also will reject you from being priests for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. So we have in that verse, Hosea 4, 6, lack of knowledge, rejecting knowledge, and forgetting the law of God. Lack of knowledge, rejecting knowledge, forgetting the law of God. It's those three things. Lack of knowledge, you just don't know. Rejecting knowledge... You, you hear it, no, but that's not for me. That's not for me. That's not what I want. And forgetting the law of the Lord. And the judgment here is, is this. I also will reject you from being priests for me. Remember the priests were, were commanded, I've already mentioned this, to go throughout uh, the land of Israel and teach the people. Teach the people the word of God. Teach them. But what they, were, they weren't doing it. And Hosea says, my people are perishing for lack of knowledge. And, and the priest, what's wrong with you? You're, you're, you've rejected it, and you've forgotten it, and you're not doing this. The Word of God is, has fallen by the wayside, so I'm going to reject you as priests. Jeremiah put it this way. Listen, all the earth, I will bring disaster on my people. It is the fruit of their own schemes, because they refuse to listen to me. They have rejected my word. Rejected my word. And then we talked about what happens when you rediscover the book. Talked about five things. This is all just review. Preaching and teaching becomes prioritized. I mean, when they found the book, they started reading it. They started proclaiming it, right? Repentance is granted by God. Repentance is granted. You got that, Rob? Repentance is granted by God. They started repenting. They started repenting. We talked about how repentance, just like faith, is a gift from God. It doesn't arise from you. It's not a good work that you do that God blesses with salvation. It's a gift from God. God enables you the ability to repent. Earnest seeking is prioritized when you rediscover the book. Unity increases, and evangelism takes place. So we looked at that last week. So because the days are so perilous, every minister and believer must guard the gospel. So I'm going to read two verses out of 2 Timothy chapter 1. It'll be verses 13 and 14. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Everybody there? Say yes. Hold fast. Everybody do that. Hold fast. Hold fast. The pattern of sound words 
which you have heard from me. So Paul's writing Timothy, who was a pastor, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing, everybody say good thing. In a modern translation, it calls it a treasure. That treasure, that good thing, which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit. That word keep means guard. Guard. Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Hold fast the Word of God. It's a treasure that God's entrusted to you that you must guard it, hold fast to it, and you do this by the power of the Holy Spirit that's on the inside of you. That's really the the thinking there and the book of Timothy. So we find out that the gospel is to be guarded. Keep guard by the Holy Spirit. Guard it, protect it. It needs to be guarded. Why? Because it's under attack. And it's always been under attack. And the first attack on Scripture, found in the Scripture, is where? Where do you think? Garden of Eden. The serpent. Hath God said? That's the attack on the word of the Lord. Now, it wasn't the written word. It was the spoken word. They didn't have the written word in the Garden of Eden, but they did have the spoken word of God that God spoke to Adam and, I believe, also to Eve, that they were not to eat of that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did, they would die. And so the serpent immediately attacked the veracity, the truthfulness of what God said by casting doubt on it. Hath God said, you shall not surely die. He even added to it. You can't even touch it. Now, the Bible didn't say that God said you can't touch it, just that you can't eat it. So he doubted it. He denied it. He added to it. Doubted, denied, added. Doubted, denied, added. Doubt, and that's what the devil does. He doubts God's word. He denies God's word. He adds to God's word. Am I right about that? And so the Word of God needs to be guarded because it's always under attack. The devil loves to to deny the Word, doubt the Word. He loves to deceive the Word. The Bible talks about those that twist the Scripture. Twist the Scripture. I read an article about a pastor. We we know what happened down in Tennessee when uh, the woman that believed she was a man went into the Christian school and uh, gunned down six. Six people, right? Was it six? I believe it was six. Murdered six people. And a pastor, I think in South Dakota, preaching that this transgender was Jesus Christ. Now that's twisting the Scripture. Am I right about that? twisting the Scripture. And that's what people do. We talked about the things last week, the sanctity of, we talked about five things, right? We talked about the sanctity of life, that life is precious. And people twist the Scriptures to say a woman's authority over her own body is more important than guarding and protecting life. And that's a twisting of the Scriptures, right? We talked about the sanctity of life. We talked about the sanctity of marriage, Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the way God established it. People twist the Scripture and believe in homosexual unions. We talked about the sanctity of sex, 
how it's the marriage bed that is undefiled, the sex between one man, one woman, in a covenant relationship for life. That bed is undefiled, but adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. But people twist that, scriptures, to say, well, if you're in love, then God sanctifies sex. Or if you're engaged, God sanctifies sex. Or even homosexuality, which is condemned in Scripture. They take the passage out of Romans chapter 1 and uh, how men with men and women with women doing that which is unseemly or inordinate or against nature. And I've I've read articles written by homosexuals that believe it's against nature for them to have relations with women. Therefore, they would be violating Scripture if, the, if a man who had homosexual tendencies had sexual relations with a woman. That's against their nature. But see, that's twisting of Scripture. That's, twi- that's what they do. They twist Scripture. Twist Scripture. So he talked about the sanctity of sex, the sanctity of what? Of sexuality. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Male and female. And they said, no, my identity is how I feel on the inside. I'm a, I'm a man, I'll, I'll answer your question, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. But he makes them male and female with the chromosomes. All right, very good. Yes, you have a question. Public expressions of deeper rooted problem. Yes, I would agree with that. Absolutely. Yes, and what do you think that deeper rooted problem is? Disconnect from God, from truth. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Very good. It is disappearing, yes. So we talked about the sanctity of life. Thank you for the sanctity of life. I do think it's, it's a deeper issue, right? Ultimately, rebellion against God, idolatry against God, a turning away from God, right? So you got the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of sex, that it's in the marriage relationship, the sanctity of sexuality, that it's male and female. There's not, there's not 69 genders. It's male and female. There's just two. And then the, well, I think what we talked about, the sanctity of truth. That truth is objective. That the Word of God is objective truth, not subject to truth. It's not true because you believe it or you feel it. It's true. It stands on its own. It's objective. It's foundational. You can believe it, stand on it. It's true whether you believe it or not, whether you feel like it or not, right? You don't embrace your truth, and I don't embrace my truth. We embrace God's truth. And God's truth might violate or be different than your truth, what you think or feel on the inside. So your mind needs to be transformed by the renewing of your mind after the Word of God. So if you believe something that the Bible says is a lie, you need to not change the Word of God to fit the lie, twist the Scriptures to make it fit the lie, but rather you take the lie and cast it down and believe the truth of God's Word. Somebody say amen to that.
So we need to guard, guard the gospel. So pastors need to proclaim the word, teach the word, defend the word, and commit the word to the next generation. He talks about this, and we'll talk about this next week, about committing the word to the next generation. The things that you've heard, Timothy, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Because there always will arise a generation that does not know the Lord. And so it's always important for us to hand the truth off to the next generation. And then the next generation. I'm going to read this to you. Tell me if you're in in agreement. God has entrusted his word to me. This is the most solemn responsibility that I have in my life. And I have a solemn responsibility for the trust of my wonderful wife. I have a solemn responsibility for the trust of my dear children. But they combined do not come to the level of the trust that I have to maintain the integrity of the Word of God. That's the most sacred trust I have. I am more than anything a guardian of the truth, and so are you. All of us are. You know how much you love your spouse, love your children, and you want to protect them and guard them and keep them safe? This quote basically says, the truth of God's Word, you know, basically as a preacher, he has committed to me the Word of God to preach it, to proclaim it, to teach it, to accurately or rightly divide the Word of God. That guarding and protecting this is actually a greater trust a greater responsibility than even guarding my and protecting my wife and children. Well, that's, that gets down to the, where the rubber meets the road. Somebody say amen to that. That's how important this is. Why? Because heaven and earth can pass away, but my word will not pass away. That's how important this is. So the gospel is to be guarded, guarded, because it's under attack, and it is. It's under attack. And I am troubled, discouraged, alarmed at evangelical preachers and teachers that are not guarding the gospel, but have allowed culture and cultural pressures to I believe, cause them to compromise the clear teaching of Scripture. Number two, the gospel is to be held fast. Verse 13, hold fast the pattern of sound words. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. The pattern of sound words, that's interesting, isn't it? I looked at a lot of different commentaries on this. I'm going to read to you the pattern of sound words. True teaching has a pattern, a soundness, a distinctiveness to it. The discerning heart can detect the true pattern from false teaching. Sound words are wholesome words that produce good fruit in your life. So Paul writing Timothy says, hold on to it, Timothy. Don't let it slip. Hold fast to the Word of God. Cling to it. Cleave to it. Hold fast to it. The pattern of sound words, the the teachings that I laid before you, Timothy, 
how I explained it to you, how I taught to you the doctrines, the truths, the teachings, the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, that, that pattern of sound words. Hold fast to it. And if, and if somebody comes teaching and it doesn't seem to fit into that, that cadence, that pattern, that distinctiveness, then let there be a warning sign go up. Warning, warning, warning. Potential error. Let's be discerning. That sound good? So you got you to hold fast. Hold it fast. Cling to it, right? Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 3, Paul writing about how we need to hold it fast and guard it and preach the truth. He says, the time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. There's that word sound, the pattern of sound words. To sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Now, in the book of Acts, Paul was in uh, Athens, I believe, Mars Hill, and he's meeting with people, and they just gathered together to talk about things and to hear some new thing. And here comes Paul talking about Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And, hey, this is new. Wow, this is new. And, uh, you know, so Paul is very much aware of the desire to hear something new and how people will gather to themselves teachers that will tell them something new. But there is a pattern of sound words that produces a wholesomeness, whole someness spiritual health godliness holiness godly behavior changed life jesus christ it's like the true teaching is like a great meal that has all the ingredients you know your vegetables your fruits your meat all the ingredients with all the essential vitamins and things that if you eat that it'll produce a healthy body the Word of God is like a, a five-course meal ingested properly. It's, it, it brings soundness, spiritual health, wholeness to you, godly life. That makes sense? It feeds you. It challenges you. It corrects you. It builds you up. It nourishes you. It's not always exciting, I don't know if this message is exciting. It's not always exciting, but it's sound. It's wholesome. And uh, with the internet, man, you can you can get all kinds of preachers and prophets and people proclaiming and exclaiming things. And man, some of the times, man, that, I, it just does not ring true. Like the Bible says, the pattern of sound words. I just don't connect with the Spirit. I don't connect with the new revelation. Uh, I don't connect with the attitude. Uh, I'm not going to listen to that person. Not going to listen to it. So we, we, we have to hold fast. Hold fast. Paul tells Timothy, endure sound doctrine. Now what does that mean? Endure sound doctrine. What in the world does that mean, to endure sound doctrine? We're supposed to endure afflictions. We're supposed to endure all things. 
We're all supposed to, also, according to Paul writing Timothy, we're supposed to endure sound doctrine. Well, it goes kind of with what I'm talking about. People want new things, teachers teaching new things, having people's ears are being scratched, because sound doctrine becomes old or tiresome or no longer exciting. And so the pastor or the preacher gets under pressure to come up with some new revelation that can excite the people. And Paul telling Timothy, I want you to endure sound doctrine. Keep teaching it and preaching it and guarding it and holding fast to it. Don't get off on the genealogies and words and new things and hold fast to wholesome teaching, sound words. That's what we need. Am I right about that? Endure sound doctrine. He says, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. That good thing is called a treasure in a modern translation. The treasure that was committed to you or entrusted to you. So the gospel is precious truth. It's like a treasure. So we have the word of God, and Paul tells Timothy, I want you to guard it. Because it's like a treasure, like a, a treasure chest full of treasure. It's, it's very valuable. And the devil wants to destroy this, to to diminish its value. So you guard it, like like a soldier would guard uh, a treasure. So you as a preacher or a pastor or a believer, guard the Word of God. Guard the Word of God. It's precious truth. Now let me ask you this question. How much is this treasure worth to you? It's called a treasure, How much is this worth to you? How much value do you place on this? How much value do you place on this? Susan Riard is raising her hand. She's raising her hand to heaven. She says, I'm placing tremendous value on it. You can't live without it. It's worth everything. How much do you value this? Do you fill your heart with it? Do you read it? Do you meditate on it? Do you believe it? Do you obey it? Do you want to be taught it? Do you neglect it? You know, my my parents had a huge family Bible. It's just... uh, you know, had them in that thick, and they always had it in the living room. Now, the living room was a room that you didn't go into. It had all the beautiful furniture. You never went into the living room. You, we lived in the family room. That's where the TV was, and the living room was like, almost like a museum. It was beautiful, right? The beautiful furniture and, and pictures, and, and uh, the, I think the china cabinet with the beautiful plates were in there. They had a beautiful table, and on that sat the family Bible. And, you know, my mom would dust once or twice, once a week, maybe twice a month, whatever, and she would dust off the Bible. Why would she dust off the Bible? 
because it was never read. They never opened the book. It was valuable in the sense of it's the family Bible. We'll put it in the living room. It was like a, like a beautiful uh, china that, you know, you can't use that. You know, it's too breakable. It's too valuable. We just look at it. It just sat there. It just sat there. Remember, it had beautiful colored pictures in it and, and uh, gold along the edgings. And it was red, a red cover. And like thick and whoa, boom. But they'd have to dust it off because they would, well, that's almost making an idol of it. We don't believe in Bible idolatry. We don't worship the idea of this book, but we love the truth. We worship the God of this book, right? And so it's a treasure. You, you, you show the worth of it by how much you turn to it. Look to it. Follow it. How much you feel like you need it. Right? You need this. I think it was Job, the word of God is my necessary food. My necessary food. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of the Lord. God's word. We rediscovered the book. That's so important, isn't it? And so it's to be, it's a precious thing, right? It's a good thing, a treasure. And the Bible says that good thing which was committed to you, committed to you, the idea that it's been entrusted to Timothy. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 9.16 says this, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me, he says, a necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach it. Paul writing, Timothy, that good thing, that treasure which was committed to you. Timothy, God gave you this book. It's committed to you. It's entrusted. Like, like a steward. Be a faithful steward of it. Paul says, man, I have woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I mean, a dispensation has been committed to my trust. I need to be faithful with this thing. I remember when the Lord called me to preach the gospel. I was just 18 years of age. It's the month of November. I got saved in April, so May, June, July, August, September, October, November. Been saved seven months. I was having my morning devotions before I went off to Bible college. I was sitting on the floor by my bed. I opened up my Bible, reading Romans chapter 1. Paul said he was a debtor to preach the gospel to them that are Rome also. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, and you are indebted to preach the gospel. Just spoke that to me. You are indebted to preach the gospel. I knew it was a calling. Calling to preach, to proclaim the everlasting gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And my response was, thank you, Lord. I was so happy and honored that God had called me because he had put it in my heart to serve him full time. I wanted to do that. Now, my, the pastor's son, he was my age. His name was also Tim. The pastor's son, he felt a call of God in his life. And I remember I would 
talked with him some, and he said, man, the last thing I ever wanted to do was go into the ministry and to be a preacher of the Word of God. He said, I wanted to be a coach. I want to go to school. I want to graduate from school and, and, and uh, go into phys ed, major in phys ed, so that I can become a basketball coach. Last thing I want to do is preach the gospel. And so the pastor's son, Tim Judkins, he ran, ran from the calling. And he told me that. And I would say, man, I want to do this. Now that I look back, he was probably, no, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. The ministry is challenging. It's challenging. I will say that. It is challenging. But very, very rewarding. But uh, Paul told Timothy, you know, that treasure has been committed to you, Timothy, entrusted to you. That's why you have to guard it. It's been entrusted to you. God's given it to you. So you got to preach it. You got to defend it. You got to proclaim it. You got to rightly divide it. You got to follow it. You, you, I mean, it's in your hands, Timothy. And boy, I, I really feel that. I've always felt that, the weight of that in my 37 years of pastoring up here and studying the Word of God and going to Bible college and going to seminary and learning the Word and studying the Word, then I just really feel that. The reason most people don't have the courage of their convictions is because they don't have convictions. Before you put your life on the line for what you believe, you have to believe it. And I've learned this. Let me ask you this question. I've learned this, that You live not what you maybe preach, but you live what you really believe. You live what you truly believe. You might not live what you preach or what you proclaim. You might talk a good talk and don't live up to that or whatever. You know, oh, I've just given God my everything, and he's just so important to me, and I just love him more than anything, and I just want to serve the Lord more than... I mean, that might be your testimony, but then you might not live up to that, what you say you believe, but you really do live up to what you really believe on the inside. What you really believe on the inside. That's how you live your life. If you really believe that the Word of God is a treasure... If you really believe that, then you would, wouldn't you read it, study it, hunger for it, obey it, follow it? If you really believe that Jesus is Lord, wouldn't he be your personal Lord and everything would be submitted unto him? If you really believe that his will for your life is better than your will for your life, wouldn't you willingly surrender your life and live for his will? I mean, if you really believe that, but if you don't really believe that, you just talk a good talk. If you don't really believe that, You'll live your own life and give lip service. I think that we really do believe or really do live the way we truly believe on the inside of our heart. How much do you really love God and love God's Word? Love truth. Love His will. If you truly, truly believe then you will live that out. Amen? You will live that out. Pastors are to be faithful stewards. Pastors faithfully guard what belongs to God, which is the gospel. Now, the book of Ezra tells us the three steps that we need to take. 
I'm going to read this verse. You tell me the three steps. Then Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So I see three, th- three steps. Three steps for somebody that's going to be in the ministry. What are those three steps? You first must seek it or study it. The second step is you will do it or obey it. Then the third step is teach it. Study it, obey it, teach it. That's the order. Not teach it, study it, and then obey it. No, you study it, obey it, teach it. So you study the Word so you can rightly divide it. And what you study, what you learn, you obey it, and that gives you credibility. Gives you integrity and credibility with your children, with your spouse, with your church, with your ministry. It gives you credibility. And then you teach it. You teach it. That makes sense? In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul writing Timothy, says, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Well, let's unpack this. Talking about the gospel being committed to your trust. Paul tells Timothy, take heed to yourself. So watch your life, Timothy, because you're a pastor. And to the doctrine. The doctrine. What's doctrine? We think doctrine is, uh, well, the ten major doctrines of the Bible. Theology, Christology, Soteriology, Eschatology, Angelology, Bibliology. You know, we have all those uh, doctrines, the ten major doctrines. But doctrine is basically teaching. So Paul telling Timothy, take heed to yourself. Watch your life, Timothy. And take heed to your doctrine, the teaching. The pattern of sound words, the wholesome teaching, the truth, the doctrine, the teaching. Take heed to the teaching. Because if you watch your personal life and you watch the word that you're proclaiming and teaching, then you will save your hearers and yourself. You will save your hearers and yourself. See the credibility and integrity that comes when a pastor watches his life to serve the Lord, to love God, to obey God, and watches over to be a faithful preacher, teacher of the doctrine or the teachings, and if he continues in that for weeks, months, and years, he not only will be saved— from being shipwrecked, scandalous sin, right? He not only will be saved, but his hearers, the congregation, the people, they also will have the work of God in their heart, saving them, transforming them, changing them. But if the pastor is preaching the Word and living in scandalous sin— Everything eventually breaks down. Or the pastor is living what you would consider a honoring life before God, as far as you know. But then he gets into error. He gets into error. 
then that becomes in and of itself a scandal. Does it not? And it shipwrecks people's faith. It destroys that relationship. Well, the gospel is entrusted. And he talks about faith and love in verse 13. So reading that again, it says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. So Paul committed it to Timothy. In faith and love. And so the transforming nature of the gospel is that it's supposed to produce faith and love in you. Every pastor and every believer must have a personal transformation. The Word of God fills you with faith, for faith comes by hearing the Word of God, and also the Word of God fills you with love, with love, for faith works by love. Paul writing in 1 Timothy 1.5, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. So the purpose of the commandment, why God gave this word was to not just make you knowledgeable. Well, I'm studying the word, studying the word, studying the word, studying the word. Studying. Why? Why are you studying this word? So that the purpose of this commandment is to fill you with love and give you a good conscience. A good conscience means that you're honoring God in such a way that you're not defiling your conscience by sin. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love and holiness, which is what that good conscience is, holiness. God gave the word to transform you, not just educate you. Because knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. And so the pastor needs to be transformed. In other words, the more spiritual you get, the more loving you need to be. The more loving you need to be. Sometimes we think preachers that are powerful are doing miracles. But the truly powerful preacher is the one that is loving God and living a godly life because the Word of God is working strongly in them. The Corinthian church were carnal, and they came behind a no-good gift. It doesn't take great virtue to have the gift of faith or the gift of miracles or the gift of healing. But it does take great virtue to be filled with the love of God and live a godly life. And that's the purpose of the commandment. Somebody say amen to that. Amen to that. Praise the Lord. And so it concludes, the one verse later, it says this. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me. So this is 2 Timothy 1.15. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. And I'm sure I pronounced those names correctly. Phygelus and Hermogenes. We don't know who these two fellows were. Some say they were elders of the church in Ephesus. Not sure about that. They don't really know for sure. But, you know, Paul's encouraging Timothy to hold fast, to guard the gospel, to be filled with faith and love. It's been entrusted to you. Be faithful to this. And there are two guys that have turned away. So there will be people that will turn away. Turn away from truth. Turn away from church. Turn away from God. Turn away from the gospel. He lists these two guys. It happens. It happens. In the last days, there'll be a great falling away. An apostasy. Man, that's terrible, isn't it? And so let's rediscover the book.
And I realize rediscovering the book is not exciting, like getting a prophetic insight word to the nations. Not as exciting as that, but I tell you what, it can be a pattern of sound words that produces a wholesomeness in your life, that produces a foundation of faith and love that will keep you in these perilous times. Am I right? All right, all right. We'll close with this. What is your main takeaway? What is your main takeaway? We talked about falling away. Sue, what's your main takeaway? Excuse me? She says her main takeaway tonight is to cleave to the Word. Who else has a main takeaway? Yes. Endurance. Endurance. The sound doctrine. and. Endure, persevere, all the the voices out there, the pressures out there, the temptations that are out there, the culture that's out there. Just keep enduring. Keep persevering. That's good. That's good. Hold fast, right? Hold fast. Anybody else have a takeaway? Your main takeaway tonight? Yeah, not, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Hey, we need the pattern of sound words, right? Uh, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Amen. Well, this world is very worldly. Very worldly. Well, I, I remember back uh, during COVID and uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, all that, all that. It was like a tidal wave. Just like a tidal wave. People caught up in, in racial animosity. People caught up in political strife and division. People caught up in just all that that was out there. And the prophets were prophesying, and the culture was yelling and screaming, and pressure here and pressure there. You know what the Lord told me? He says, be still and know that I am God. That's what he told me. He spoke to me right at the beginning of all that. Just be still. Just chill. Don't get all worked up on this. And, uh, you know, I felt the waves of the pressure. You know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you think? 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 Felt all that, and I uh, felt pressure that I need to say something or to make a stand and, or to prophesy. And uh, the Lord spoke to me out of Mark Sharona, who's a prophet out of Florida. He spoke to me out of something he said. He said, the prophets need to be silent right now. They need to be still and just let it rest and give God time so that they can discern what God is really saying. You know, when he said that, I felt like the Lord said, don't give yourself to prophecies. I felt like he spoke that to me in the very beginning. And they were prophesying the quick end to covid they're prophesying that Trump's going to be reelected president. They're prophesying all kinds of things, right? And all kinds of conspiracies and this and that. And the Lord told me, don't even give yourself to any of that. Don't listen to it. Don't give yourself. And I remember I, I shared that with some minister friends of mine. 
you know, I'm not going to give myself to prophecy. I'm not going to believe these things. I'm not going to stand on these things. I'm not going to declare these things. The Lord told me to keep, be, keep quiet and not to give myself to these prophetic predictions. And I had one of my pastor friends, my wife was in the car with me. He called me up. I took the call. And man, he just went up one side down the other rebuking me. We need to believe the prophets. That's what we're called to do. And you know, the prophets that prophesied that he was believing, it didn't come to pass. It didn't come to pass. And I have never had the conversation with him. I've seen him a couple times since. I've never had the conversation with him. But I would love to go up to him just because of my flesh (laughs) and say, how'd that work out for you? How'd that work out for you? Did it work out for you? Didn't work out for you. And uh, do you want to apologize? You, you owe me. You're a debtor to me, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those that are indebted. You know, you owe me an apology. Uh, but I've never done that. But boy, my flesh wants to say that to this guy. Wants to say this to, this, to that guy. Anyway, but that was a lot of pressure. And I would tell my wife, you know, I just feel like it's a wave. And if we just wait it out, it'll recede. And the pressure will release. And we'll all know where we're standing. We'll all know where we're standing. Where God is, where we're standing, what was of God, what wasn't of God. And a lot of those prophets that prophesied, they've repented. Because they're prophesying out of their own desire, their own heart. And they admitted it, and they repented. And there wasn't a quick end to COVID. It went on for a number of years, and they were wrong as well. I say, let God be true and every man a liar. Sometimes you just have to persevere and endure sound doctrine and not get caught up in the cultural wave or the prophetic wave or the Christian wave or whatever that wave is. All right, I'm just sharing my heart here tonight. Hope it doesn't offend you. Excuse me? Oh, okay, very good. Praise the Lord. Anybody else have a, have a takeaway? A takeaway? Excuse me? Guard the gospel. That's right. Guard it. It's under attack, isn't it? Hold fast. Let's believe the truth. The truth is precious. Let's believe the truth. All right, God bless you.